a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. And welcome to this special program, Insights and Impact. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. China now has lifted virtually all of its quarantine and travel restrictions, a move closely watched by political leaders, central bank governors, and economists worldwide. What will a Chinese economic recovery look like? Given the extent and scope of challenges to the global economy, what role will China play in 2023 and beyond? I'm joined today by six international journalists and political analysts and economists to share their insights. We have Dr. Mohammad Fergal Rao, head of China desk from Associated Press Pakistan. We also have Mr. Supachai Wuthichuan, senior reporter from Manager Media Group in Thailand, and Mr. Akena Imewu, editor-in-chief from Africa China Economy Magazine. Mr. John Ross is the former director of economic and business policy for the mayor of London. And Mr. Daro Guppy, national board member of the Australia China Business Council. And last but not least, we have Bill Jones, Washington bureau chief with the Executive Intelligence Review. Welcome to all of you, gentlemen. China has reopened itself, uh, aka uh, optimized its COVID and travel restrictions. What do you think China's reopening will mean for the world economy? Um, let me start with you, Bill, in Washington, D.C. Well, I think that uh, it's been very encouraging for most of the world, uh, including business people here in the United States, uh, in uh, the financial and in the industrial community, uh, but also worldwide. China has been moving forward, but uh, with this opening up, it created a great sense of optimism uh, throughout the world. Figures that are coming out now from the World Bank and from the IMF show that China's economic growth, in contrast to all the other countries, is, is moving forward. So again, uh, China will become the uh, engine for economic development. I think the move was uh, very strategic on China's part, and it will have a uh, very beneficial effect in a situation uh, which is very dire in many countries uh, because of the COVID and because of the uh, economic stagnation as a result of this era of hibernation. All right, thanks for that introduction. Um, Mr. Guppy in Darwin, Australia, um, how do you see the reopening of China and especially its business and investment links between Canberra and Beijing going forward? The reopening is welcomed by everybody. There's no question about that. So what we're looking for is fast access into China so that we can restore face-to-face -face meetings. So businesses can re-establish themselves, we can start to develop new business activities and to explore some of the opportunities that have existed in China during the COVID period. Because in the West, there is this idea that somehow China didn't develop. It stood still or even went backwards during COVID, whereas this is not correct. What we've seen is tremendous advances in the digital economy and this is something that is of interest particularly to Australia, but to business more broadly. The important thing is that we are able to resume access and improve the diplomatic relations. The Prime Minister of Australia recently met with the Chinese leader. Um, what do you think are the deliverables of that summit? And, um, you know, really your expectation, your readings on China-Aussie relations going forward? It's a delicate situation because the anti-China forces that dominated Australian policymaking for the last decade haven't gone away overnight with the election of a new government. And some of that approach, in fact, is created and formulated by foreign interference in our policymaking. So there are a number of think tanks that are foreign funded that have undue influence on Australian policy. Yes, so it's a delicate the ASBI, time. right? 
ASPI is the leading uh, foreign influence uh, actor in this environment, yes. All right, fair enough. Let me ask some questions to our friends from Asia. Uh, Supa Chai, you're right now based in Bangkok, Thailand. Of course, your deputy prime minister, along with two other ministers, um, very generously, very graciously welcomed the first batch of Chinese tourists uh, since China's reopening. What's your rating of that gesture? I, and I guess that has um, you know, gone a long way in uh, you know, attracting more Chinese tourists to your country. Yes, thank you. Uh, tourism is an important part of Thailand economy. About 30% of Thai GDP is delivered from tourism revenue and Chinese tourists account for more than half of all tourists. The Tourism Authority of Thailand Executive said that Thai tourism will not be able to return to pre-pandemic level if Chinese tourists do not fully return. This is why Thailand is very welcoming to Chinese tourists. Dr. Rao in Islamabad, Pakistan, uh, how do you foresee China's reopening to strengthen China-Pakistan relations, which has been described by both sides as an all-weather strategic partnership? Thank you so much. Uh, it is very good to see and in my view and all Pakistanis are also very much happy because China has opened its, uh, itself after the almost three years. So this decision is not only good for the world, but also for the Pakistan, because many Pakistani students are interested to get higher education in the Chinese universities. Now they will get opportunity again to study there and the business community want to promote their business ties and enhance to trade. So by opening of the China, now our trade will boost and our youth will be uh, more collaborative and the people to people exchanges would be enhanced. Yeah, Dr. Rao, if you think about China-Pakistan relations, a signature product of it is really CPAC, right? Which is really a cornerstone. Uh, how do you see China's reopening, uh, you know, in perhaps, uh, you know, fast-tracking the CPAC process? I think it would be a great step for the smooth functioning of the China-Pakistan economic corridor. And let me tell you, China-Pakistan economic corridor is very much significant for Pakistan as it improved Pakistan's road infrastructure, agricultural development, and it reduced the, our energy crisis in Pakistan, created job employment, is a very good for Pakistan's economic uh, situation and economic progress. Yeah, exactly. Recently, I had the privilege of talking to our prime minister when he was visiting China, uh, Mr. Shabazz Sharif. Um, he was the chief minister of Punjab, as you know better than yes. I do. And, uh, you know, during the uh, governorship there, he really oversaw a series of infrastructure projects from the first metro line in Punjab to roads and bridges yes. and ports over there. Uh, and he said uh, it's his priority to really fast track the CPAC. All right, John Ross in London. How do you see China's reopening in terms of, uh, you know, impacting China-UK relations, economic relations in particular going forward? There's two aspects to this. One is the overall, from the point of the world economy, it's going to have be extremely beneficial, but China's going to become the, once more the main locomotive of the world economy. If you look more narrowly at the situation with Britain, I'm afraid it's, there's two contradictory factors. One is economically, Britain has a great deal to um, gain from trade and, and investment with China. Secondly, however, I'm afraid the British government tends to pursue rather foolish policies. I'm afraid I don't see very short-term sign of Britain changing its political policy because basically it follows what the United States wants. And if the United States wants tense relations with China, which it does, British government will do. So it's a 
good economically but bumpy politically is the way I would characterize it. In Mewu, in Abuja, Nigeria, in fact, Chinese Foreign Minister Chen Gang just visited your continent over there, um, visiting five countries as well as the headquarters of the African Union and the Arab Union over there. Um, how do you see China's opening in terms of the benefits it can really bring to China-Africa relations in general and China-Nigeria uh, economic relations in particular? Of course, it's a welcome development that China has reopened its international borders to travelers and inclusive of African travelers and those from Nigeria. To Nigeria in particular, 45% uh, of international businesses between Nigeria and other worlds is between Nigeria and China. Uh, there's the high hope that all those businesses that were left pending between Nigerians and Chinese partners, we all kick off again. The visit of the FM, Mr. Chigang, that was a wonderful one. And he being at the AU implies being in the entirety of Africa, because there is no time he could run through the 54 countries of Africa or 53 around the FOCA platform. But being at the AU means discussing directly with Africa. And I know there are a lot of possibilities. There are a lot of benefits and impacts that we accrue to Africa and even to China from this opening up of the borders. Um, I want to talk about the world economy because there are so many factors at play. There are so many competing dynamics at play. Bill Jones, let me go to you again in Washington, D.C. Look at the challenges to the world economy. There are many, um, from soaring inflation, as you mentioned, to supply chain disruptions, to the volatilities of commodity prices, you know, geopolitical tensions. What do you identify as the more serious challenges, and how can China and your country, in this case America, go about dealing with them? Well, the biggest problem is, of course, the uh, the fact that the world financial system, call call it the New York London financial system, is a is a debt bubble. Uh, there's more debt in that uh, in the system; it can never be paid by production in the physical economy. Uh, almost a quadrillion dollars uh, in in flux. If you count up all the outstanding debt, private and public debt, uh, cannot be paid, and therefore. Uh, the problem the world is facing is that there's a need for uh, international financial reform to get some stability back into the system in which credit becomes a handmaiden to the physical economy and not something in itself. But at the present moment, it's a big problem. The second thing is that uh, what we have been doing in terms of uh, the geopolitics of trying to disrupt the international supply chain will lead to a decrease in productivity and a uh, decrease in production. And it's going to be a very, very difficult situation going forward. We have to uh, reestablish some kind of international financial uh, cooperation between nations, focusing on increasing the physical production of the economy. Mr. Guppy, let me turn to you in Australia. China is a major buyer major consumer of uh, commodities, you know, such as iron ore that's been, uh, you know, turned out by Australia. How do you see China's uh, demand, which is hopefully, are, you know, uh, rising back to the pre-COVID levels and what we mean for Australia's producers over there? Certainly the increase in the Chinese economy will automatically lead to an increase of demand for Australian commodities, but also commodities worldwide. Going back to, to Bill's comments, we need to be aware that this idea of inflation is, 
based to some extent on false assumptions. We talk about commodity inflation, but in fact, the price of oil now is as low as it was 18 months ago. So what's driving this inflationary spiral? It's not necessarily commodity prices. It is a debt-driven inflationary spiral that's related to supply side rather than demand side. So from an Australian perspective, the expansion of the Chinese economy opens up business opportunities that will be opened, welcomed with open arms. What's important there is the on-the-ground mechanics of being able to make those connections to be able to take advantage of trade with China in a way that is separate from the swift cross-border trade settlement system, which is being held to ransom very much by America at this point in time. So China's digital currency is an important player in the expansion and globalization of the Chinese economy post-COVID. Mr. Uh, Supachai with the Chuan in Bangkok, Thailand, how do you expect China's reopening to affect China-Thailand relations economic-wise going forward? Let me give an example. On the first day of welcoming Chinese tourists, there is a last banner at the airport that writing in Chinese that say, Zhong Thai Yi Jie Qing, Thai Guo Ye Qing Yi Jiu, which represent Thai and Chinese alike family. Thailand warm welcome is still the same. Thailand has been waiting for the return of Chinese friends for more than three years. This is like a reunion. In Thai and Chinese language, there is a similar proverb that says, which means it is such a delight to have friends coming from afar. I think this is not just a tourism business, but a relationship and connection among people. I think when people have a good relationship with each other, cooperation in other matters will be smooth. Mr. John Ross in London, I still want to get your take on the economic side of China's impact, uh, the impact of the economic side of China's reopening. Uh, there's so many different forces at play, right? On one hand, rising Chinese consumer demand might uh, push up sectors such as tourism, countries who are selling to the Chinese market. But on the other hand, rising Chinese demand might also push up uh, prices like that of the oil. How are you looking at these uh, competing dynamics? If you look at the most fundamental factor in the situation, it's because that China has completely escaped the, the inflationary wave which took place in the West. I mean, the US launched um, with COVID one of the most disastrous um, stimulus packages that you, one could imagine. One might describe as a 100% failure. It produced the highest inflation for 40 years and lower growth than pr prior to that. China, due to its policies, entirely escaped this. Um, and the inflate, latest inflation rate in China is 1.8%, which means the, the central bank has got quite a lot of room for manoeuvre. And therefore, you've got two totally different conversations. The discussion in the United States is only how much the economy will slow down. Will it go into a recession or many grow very slowly? And the discussion in China, rightly, is how much is the economy going to speed up? And these, these are the fundamental factors of the situation. Yeah, I want to seize upon what you said and go to Bill Jones in Washington, D.C. I mean, looking at it from the outside, how do you look at the Chinese economy? Well, I think it's moving in the right direction. But of course, it, it will take a certain amount of time. Uh, I think you will see uh, a lot more investment. You'll probably begin to see uh, some tourists going uh, uh, back to China. And, and the restrictions that are being made are all co not coming from China, but they're coming from the U.S. government, which is putting pressure on these people. But I think in terms of their own uh, self-interest, 
the Chinese market for them uh, is extremely important for business people here in the United States in many different areas which have been previously restricted. And I think you will see uh, a positive reaction on the part of the of U.S. businesses. Yeah, definitely. The negative list of uh, foreign investment has been shortened significantly. And uh, we're seeing that uh, what kind of uh, policies uh, decided by the party during the Congress uh, will be translated into laws, uh, maybe even finding their way into the Constitution coming March during the two sessions. Uh, Mr. Guppy in Australia, JP Morgan, believes that China's COVID-19 policy change will bring one percentage point increase in Australia's GDP. How do you see that happening? I think that's certainly an underestimation. Pre-COVID, tourism, international students, mainly from China, and of course commodities were the three major contributors to Australia's export economy. So the return of Chinese tourists, the return of Chinese students is critical to a continuation of prosperity as Australia knew it in the pre-COVID period. Going forward, what do you see as you know, the major challenges that need to be overcome uh, when it comes to strengthening China-Pakistan relations? Because it is vital, if you think about the success of Guadalajara port in Pakistan, which is, of course, the signature product of CPAC, which in turn affects the success of China's Belt and Road Initiative. Dr. Rao. Yes, uh, CPAC is a major factor for our economic cooperation and the development and this, our economic cooperation can be further strengthened uh, by resolving uh, the security issues of the Chinese people at the working sites. Uh, if there is energy project, we have to provide security or if in the, just like uh, the China is constructing airport uh, in Gawadar. So we have to provide security. The security is the major concern from the Chinese side. Although Pakistan is working very hard to provide the security and they have reached special security unit uh, for providing security, but this is a major challenge. And the second challenge is the smooth functioning of the political government in Pakistan. But uh, right now there is a transitional and the political little bit crisis. So that's why I think uh, the strong political government can play a further better role to strengthen our economic ties and the bilateral relations. Fair enough. Uh, guys, I want to talk about the future of the world. Uh, recently, I've read a book that says there's a very interesting theory out there that basically says when we're witnessing a unipolar world, globalization seems to, be, seems to be strengthened and stable. If you think about the period between uh, 1991 to the year 2000, uh, when the former Soviet Union collapsed and, uh, you know, neoliberalism, uh, like it or not, was the unifying um, system of the world. And then right after the global financial crisis in 2009, up until the U.S.-China uh, Cold War Plus, uh, globalization seems to have lost momentum quite a bit. And now as we're heading to a multipolar world uh, where the, the unipolar world uh, may not be with us anymore, uh, how do you see the future of globalization? Why don't I start with you, Bill Jones? Well, I think you have to distinguish between uh, the globalization of the 1990s, uh, in which uh, it was really the freedom of capital move wherever it wanted to go. Uh, and this was, uh, this was beneficial in some respect, but it caused a lot of uh, uh, discrepancies. Uh, there was an uh, increasing uh, gap between rich and poor. There was a lot of uh, economic problems as a result of that. There was a lot of exploitation. Uh, a lot of moves to uh, get uh, uh, resources from countries, 
so it, it wasn't a happy time for everybody. The problem that we have now is that we have to have a new type of globalization, which I think China has been very keen in, in putting forward with this uh, global development initiative. That is that the countries, the, all the countries of the world must begin to work together to discuss and to work out a plan that is beneficial for the people. And the center of that must be the people's livelihood. What is the good of the people? That's where we have to go. And, and in order to do that, we have to get away from this uh, attempt to decouple or to uh, create uh, uh, small groups of different countries based on so-called values, because that's that's going to be a disaster economically and politically. And it can lead to and it can and will lead to military conflict unless it is it is put a stop to. What are people saying around the Beltway about a potential visit by the top diplomat of the United States to China. I mean, at this point, with Kevin McCarthy, a seemingly hawkish figure from the U.S. House, what can you know be the direction of the future for U.S.-China relations? On the one hand, the relationship between the presidents seems to be very good. They did come to uh, very clear agreements at their last meeting, but that has really not been followed up a whole lot. And the fact. What we had recently, of course, is this meeting between the U.S. and Japan. It looks like they're they're moving in the direction of creating some kind of a global NATO. I think that's uh, that's kind of redoing the results of World War II in one respect that I, I think is very dangerous. So I think there's going to be a, a tough haul to bring U.S.-China relations into into the, the kind of a situation that we would like to see. But it's it's worth the effort. It has to happen. And I think it will happen because the world wants it. Yeah. Uh, Mr. John Ross in London, the UK, let me turn to you. What do you think about the theory where only a unifying uh, ideology and a unipolar world can bring about globalization or, you know, the acceleration of the process of globalization? Uh, let's look at the facts in the different parts of the world. Most parts of the world want to go ahead with globalization and what and regional integration. I mean, Look at it. By far the most successful economic block in the world, if you want to call it block. I mean, trading is is in East Asia with ASEAN. It's got the lowest inflation, the fastest growth. Why? Because it's absolutely refused to get divided on political lines. I mean, in East Asia, you've got every type of political regime virtually you could imagine. You, on the other hand, in Europe, you've got absolute chaos at the present time. And this is due to the policies of going on with the United States, the expansion of um, NATO, which is what's behind the Ukraine war. You couldn't have a big, more polar opposite. So it's actually the unipolar element, the United States that's creating the chaos. Uh, Mr. Guppy in Darwin, Australia, let me turn to you. Bring us the, the Aussie perspective about the future of globalization, uh, your perspective. We're moving into a multipolar world. world. The institutions of global governance need to recognise these changes. It's unreasonable to attempt to exclude the world's second largest economy from the formation of global standards that will apply to the digital economy in particular. Support for inclusive policy agreements, such as the Global Development Initiative, and support for the United Nations are the key ways to strengthen this cooperation. Although it may cause discomfort to the United States in particular, Globalization is unstoppable. Exact form that it will take remains at this point in time an open question. Dr. Rao, in Islamabad, Pakistan, what is the future of globalization in your opinion? 
Uh, in my view, China and United States are the two biggest players, uh, the two biggest economic and political players in the world. They should have to take the world together. They should work uh, together for the development of the glo uh, global people. Uh, they have to serve as the both uh, uh, biggest economies uh, played their role during the COVID-19. China provided the vaccines to the world and even to the Pakistani. Pakistan, China donated 5 million doses to the Pakistan. Similarly, United States uh, donated the uh, vaccines to the world. They bring out the world uh, from the COVID-19 crisis. So if we, both countries will work together, then that would be the better for the globalization. Otherwise, the conflict is not better, I think, for the whole world. Same question to you, Mr. Supachai in Bangkok, Thailand. What is the future of globalization, in your opinion? Uh, I do agree with President Xi Jinping's statement that China development must connect to the world and the prosperity of the world also must connect to China. I think now China is reconnected to the world again. This should be the moment that the world has been waiting for. Nowadays, the world has enough problems. I think we should work together to overcome many hardships and share common prosperity together. All right, Mr. Imawu in Abuja, Nigeria, what do you think? Yes, there were times that the world was so polarized that everybody tended to mind his or her business in isolation. The reason is competition. Who leads and who follows? But the internet has become a glue that binds the whole world. Globalization has come to stay. I don't see it going away very soon. It could be threatened, but it's stabilized. Yeah, I mean, Africa was a major beneficiary of globalization, right? Uh, previously, I talked to the uh, former vice president of the African Union. He told me that basically he expects more um, great power cooperation, not confrontation, when it comes to development of Africa. He said that uh, basically Africa benefits a great deal from uh, American scientific and innovative powers and also benefiting from China's uh, infrastructure uh, plans, Belt and Road Initiative, so on and so forth. Uh, do you think he has a point? He has a point, very valid point. I agree with him totally because first of all, globalization has made more parts of the world show more interest in Africa, especially China. And what China has done in Africa raised the level of competition that so many people seem to take a yardstick from what the way China relates with Africa. Radifoka since year 2000. Uh, it has reignited what I call positive interest in Africa from the West, from America, from Russia and the rest of the world. All right, with that, we're coming to the end of this conversation. Thank you so much, um, everyone, for joining us for this special episode of Insights and Impact, wherever you are. Uh, many, many thanks. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. Our news coverage continues on CGTN. Bye and take care.